How are you? I'm well, sir. How are you? Fine, thank you, Chris. <laughs> That's good news. I went out to Arizona for four days to the uh, the PXG uh, company. Gee, they well organized those people. Yeah, I was curious about oh, you yeah. switching brands and, and going uh, now partnering with PXG over the last what year or so. Yes, well, I was with Callaway for 16 years, you know, and then uh, I think they needed to make way for younger guys and what they offered, you know, uh, we didn't think was right. So I'm very, very happy to be with PXG. They're fantastic. How's the equipment? How do you compare the equipment uh, with PXG versus what you had with Callaway? Now, I must say, I thought that I get the feeling when I play that PXG is superior. Their technology, for example, they had all the guys on the tee fitting you out and on the golf course. They have a service that uh, no other company comes close to. Their promotional days are phenomenal. So you feel like yeah, you're getting I mean, more distance and more control? Well, distance is something that doesn't happen with me at my age. I can hear the ball land. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. But I, I think I think the thing is that the uh, the irons and particularly the little fairway woods, you know, the uh, they are so fantastic. Uh, the feeling they've got in the design. Uh, every one of their clubs is absolutely. I mean, their their technology it gives you confidence to hit the ball further. I tell you, it's interesting that you mentioned their fairway was because I, I saw an interview with you uh, a while back where you talked about if you would have had a nine wood back when you played, yeah. you would have won more golf tournaments. Why is that? Well, I think particularly at Augusta, you know, I came to 13 and 15 and I was usually hitting a, you know, a three iron or a two iron uh, invariably. And you couldn't get it, you know, those days the fairways weren't like now, beautifully uh, manicured. The fairways were not all that good. And they didn't have mowers to cut the fairway short, and they didn't have the technology how to grow grass and the type of grass that they have there now. And I had great difficulty getting it up. Invariably, I'd hit on the green and go over. Whereas now, if you've got these uh, rescue clubs, you can hit the ball so high, Chris, it's uh, you hit it twice as high as we used to hit it, at least twice as high, and you can stop the ball. You know, it's just such a different game now. I mean, no spike box on the green. Every bunker, you can set the same depth. Uh, you've got mowers that can cut the greens really short. Mowers that can cut fairways very short. We used to play off quite long fairways. And in the more, and we played a lot of Bermuda grass where you couldn't stop the ball properly with the, the wetness on the grass, didn't have the grooves that you have. I mean, it's just a completely different game. And to that point, Mr. Player, one of the things that I look at today's game versus when you were in your prime is the artistry and the creativity and the things that you guys had to do because the ball flies straighter and further today, obviously, than it, than it did back when you were playing. Talk about the loss of the artistry of the game and the loss of the creativity that you guys had to have. Well, I'll give you an example. I, I never had more than a 56 in the sand, 56 degrees. Now you can get, if you want to, you can get a 64. Because remember, the flags are close to the edge of the green. And when you go in the bunkers, you've got to hit this high shot. We never had a club that could do that. We had to manufacture it with our hands. 
We had to get the club head to the ball quicker to add loft. You had to add loft when we were swinging, and we had to have a grip that made more loft. I mean, it was, you know, it is so, so different. And then the ball goes 50 yards further now, and you use one ball for a round. We used to use three and four and five balls in a round because with the old balata, if you hit a wedge, it would, you know, and, and you hit it fairly cleanly, it would scull the ball and you'd chop and change the ball. Now, sometimes I play almost two rounds with a ball. It's just, wow. it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Mr. Player, I want to go back to the, the event you hosted here not long ago, the Gary Player Invitational Tournament there at Glen Arbor Golf Club up in New York, just a little north of the city. It's a beautiful golf course that you designed there. Talk about that event. Well, it really is a beautiful golf course, and they have you know, something that is very important, Chris, and that's a staff. When you drive in there, they're so friendly and helpful. You've got great service for breakfast or for lunch. You've got a beautiful practice area, and the golf course is the kind of golf course. You know, I always feel that if you've got a golf course, you say, I've finished playing, I'd really like to go out and play again. It's so enjoyable. We don't have many bunkers in front of the green so the ladies can run the ball up. You know, today so many golf courses have bunkers in front of the green, and the lady gets on there or the old man, and he hits the ball over the bunker. They cannot stop it, Chris. So, of course, it suits all golfers, and besides that, it is beautiful with all their trees. It's just magnificent. The clubhouse high up on the hill. And they have one of the best superintendents I've ever seen. And Mr. Player, when you look at that golf course online, again, what it's a, it is a beautiful layout carved right into an area of wetlands. You've got wildlife that's, that kind of is prevalent in that area. Talk about the course itself and fit, how you were able to fit that area into a place where you didn't have to disrupt the ecosystem. Well, first of all, you know, we always had a policy that if you took out a tree, you planted two back. Because my brother was one of the world's leading conservationists, and he all said, we're going to run into trouble with water, Chris, in the world, big time, which we are right now. You know, so many of the rivers are polluted, and to get good quality water and the wastage of water. And uh, one of the things we're going to have to do, Chris, we're going to have to use effluent water on golf courses from now on because municipalities are going to run out of water with uh, growth, uh, increase in population. So we're going to have to design golf courses that don't just eat up water. And then also, Chris, we've got to do good drainage. You know, if you've got a good drainage system, the water goes through very nicely and uh, improves the underground water. So that's very important. And wetlands are something that we take very good care of because it brings the birds in. And for me, while you're playing golf and people have been under pressure at an office all week, they now go out and play golf. They want to see the birds. You know, some of us love birds. I do. I'm crazy about birds. And uh, I want to see the wildlife. And I want to see good, beautiful trees, fighting pollution. You know, all these things to me are very, very important. When I look at Glen Arbors, it's about 7,000 yards long. With the way that, you know, we talked a moment ago about the equipment and the ball and all that sort of thing, for a 7,000-yard course with guys like Cameron Champ and Rory McIlroy, Brooks Kepka, et cetera, et cetera, that are blasting the ball 350-plus yards off the tee, how do you make that course so that it's not just a driver sandwich for the uh, accomplished players? 
Well, first of all, if you put rough on a golf course, that has a tremendous bearing because these guys are not what you call the most accurate drivers in the world. Uh, when you start hitting the ball prodigious distances, you usually lose a bit of accuracy. And the other thing is all you've got to do is firm up the greens. So you don't have to have these long golf courses, as Marion has proved. Look at the score at Marion. That's a short golf course. They put rough and firmed up the greens, and that takes care of everything. They're wasting so much money in the world on changing their golf courses to and making them impossible for the members, and the members hate it. They come in and they put bunkers in front of the greens. They make the greens undulating. They make the golf course longer, and the, uh, many members, a large percentage of members, resign. That The golf ball, in my opinion, is the reason why the, the rounds of golf has deteriorated, besides the cost and the time that golf takes. We'll come into that in a minute. But the golf, the golf ball, uh, people have become, they must have spent at least, I would say, $100 million or more, $200 million on golf course changing around the world uh, in the last 10 years. I don't know, whatever the number is, but changing, unnecessarily changing all these golf courses. I mean, uh, Turnbury, yes, that that they did change, which made sense because they put the tees up on the on the mounds where you could see the Irish Sea, and he made a big improvement on that because that is a championship golf course. But most golf courses are never going to have a tournament on. And then how many more tournaments can they have, Chris? <laughs> so people are, <laughs> people are dreaming. There are only so many weeks in a year. There are only so many tournaments. And, you know, we never had a, a metal head. A metal head you hit on the toe, the heel, or the middle, and it goes pretty straight. When you played with those old wooden clubs, you know, with a, a binding, a, a, a cord that you bound around the bottom of the club and you put it in with epoxy, if you hit it in the toe or the heel, you just had no result whatsoever. And now you stand there and you're drawing the ball too much. You bring out a little screw and you screw it and you start hitting it dead straight. Or you're fading and you put that screw in and you adjust it and you start drawing the ball. I mean, it's just, it's a joke, the difference. in you, you cannot compare golfers today of the past. You take putting. The greens today are like a snooker table. We putted on crap. And let me tell you something. When you think of Tiger Woods, uh, Bobby Locke from South Africa, who is the best putter ever, and you take Billy Casper and Jack Nicklaus and Bob Charles from New Zealand, there were a host of putters that were just as good as today. Maybe, maybe better because they putted like Tarzan on lousy greens. Let's take that a step further because I agree with you. Today, you know, today's society, it's all about what's happening right now, right? Too many people fail to look back at history particularly if we're talking about who some of the greatest players are of all time. Talk about the Ben Hogan's and the Sam Sneeds and the Byron Nelsons and you and Mr. Nicholas and how accomplished you guys were in your prime for those who don't remember. You've only got to look at the scores that we did on those golf courses and you'll see the scores haven't improved that much. So, but the two best golfers I've ever seen were Sam Snead and Ben Hogan. Remember, Ben Hogan won nine majors and he went to war for five years. Then he came back and had an automobile accident. So he never played in basically uh, 30 majors in his prime. Think about that. And Sam Snead also went to war. So, I mean, that's a very, very big factor, isn't it? Yes, absolutely it is. But, you know, you just have to, and maybe 
Maybe the best golf swing I've seen is Bobby Jones, and that's over 100 years ago. But do you know, if Bobby Jones went to lessons today, there's certain pros that would change his swing. That's probably right. And I don't want to lose sight of something that you mentioned a moment ago about time. You talk about how it's challenging for how much time the game takes to play. And I know that we're trying to do a lot of different things now by carving that up. But talk about some of the things that you think we should be doing so that uh, more people get out and play. Well, first of all, I think everybody should be allowed to use a rangefinder because I see people, they, they walk across the fairway to see a sprinkler, how far it is, then they walk back. Quite honestly, they don't really know how far they hit the ball anyway. And then <laughs> just, just have a range finder for everybody. You don't need all these books. And then they look at a book to read a green, Chris. Can you imagine this? The greatest putters right. of the world in our time. And please believe me, the, 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 the putters in our time, I think, were as good or better than the guys of today. Let's say they were as good. Let's not even say they were better. They didn't need a book to read a green. I play golf courses I've never seen in my life. I don't miss reading greens. I mean, if you cannot read a green, you've got a serious problem as a pro, man. <laughs> right. They bring out a book right. to read a green. Are you crazy? I mean, you go to Scotland and the member tees off and he plays it in pouring rain and wind and he plays it in three hours. I mean, this is, and the senior tour is very good. The champions tour, they, they're very strict on slow play. We've got, and you must remember that the average amateurs watching, the young boys are watching the tour and they see them bring out books and taking all this time. I mean, uh, Kepta had a terrible time playing in the British Open this year with one of the players that was slow. He got so irritated. The man was taking, you know, seven and eight practice swings. I mean, honestly, the, the, the tour and the USGA and the RNA just got to get tough. And they got it, you know, the, the people that play off first, they've all got to finish right on time. They, you, you cannot, you should never have a round of golf. Never goes over four hours and, and 30 minutes. And Mr. Player, one of the things that we've talked about in the past is longevity. And when I look back at your playing career, you've had success in majors over 20 years. Mr. Nicholas, 25 right. years. Mr. Palmer, only over six years. Talk about how great. we should be looking at how great longevity it should factor into somebody's uh, playing career if we're talking about the greatest of all time. Yes, if you're going to be judging players, don't tell me how far they hit the ball or how charismatic they were or how great a putter they were. Just tell me what they won. It's on paper. You can see on paper who are the, the best players that ever lived. It's all written down on paper. It doesn't tell a lie. And that's the way to judge it. And also longevity. I mean, you know, if you buy a car and it only lasts you five years, that's not much of a car. You buy yourself a BMW, a proper BMW, that lasts a long, long time. So the thing is that you've got to, surely, a person who has longevity has got to go very high up the list because it showed that his game lasted for a long time. Now, let's look at players that, that, that we saw play. We saw David Duvall, number one in the world, couldn't play anymore. We saw Ian Baker Finch, right up in the tops in the world, suddenly couldn't play. We saw Trevor Immerman, won the Masters. We found he couldn't play anymore. We found Mike Weir, who won the Masters, couldn't play anymore. You can go down the list of a lot of players. There are a whole host of them that played well and won big tournaments, and suddenly you never heard of them. 
Surely longevity means, a lo I think longevity means an awful lot when judging players. You know, Chris, I'm 84 now, and I still average 72. I've beaten wow. my age 3,000 times in a row. Wow, that's amazing. On a bad day, I shoot 74, and I'm 84. Wow. That's only awesome. Be only because of the equipment, mind you, but also the fact that uh, I still work out in the gym hard, and that's the big thing. When I see people of my age, Chris, same age, and what they look like as compared to my fitness, it's a really living example of how important exercise is. And that's the one thing that gives me great joy, Chris. As, you know, we all want to leave this world having contributed to society. I think that's terribly important. I was very poor, and I always said, if I do well enough, I'm going to try and contribute to society. That's how my parents brought me up. And, you know, when I think when I started in 1953, there were nobody, nobody was using the gym. Nobody was using the weights. The only exercise they did was taking an olive from a martini glass into another. <laughs> there was, no, there was no, nobody using weights, Chris. And then Frank yeah. Stranahan... And I were the only two. And they said, uh, if I show, uh, had to tell you, being ridiculed is not the word. They all said, we're crazy. One of the famous golf architects of all time said, Gary Player will never win a tournament after the age of 35. Well, I won a tournament at 63. So, I mean, there you are. They're all working out. And Chris, I want to tell you something. I, I don't know if you'll be here in 30 years' time. I won't be. But they're going to be... Kepka will be a short hitter in 30 years' time. These guys yeah. at universities and yeah. colleges are, and around the world are lifting weights. Have you seen these guys in the world's long driving competition? They come out there and look like Mr. Universe. And you think, well, they won't be able to swing the club. And they swing it back beyond parallel. You can't get muscle bound. Now, if, you, if you're a tight person, that's unlucky for you. But the average person exercise is not going to make him that he can't play golf. I mean, these guys, these, these guys are long driving, hitting the ball. They can drive the first hole at Augusta now. Think about that. They can, the first hole at Augusta is 454. Now, right. these guys are hitting the ball 458. We're going to see things in 30 years' time. These guys on the tour today will be pea shooters. <laughs> right. I don't know what's going to happen unless we, unless we cut that ball back only for pros, not for amateurs. Leave everything to the amateurs. Let the amateur come back to the long putter. You know how many long uh, amateurs, when they took the long putter away, they had the yips so badly, and now they gave up golf. Let the amateurs use the long putter, not the pros. And the pros mustn't, and they, they mustn't be using the long putter, anchoring it. You know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. We've got to do something about this ball. I mean, as it is, one of the players, I think it was, I think it was Bubba Watson had a drive and a, and a gap wedge to 13 at Augusta. Remember? Right. I mean, they, I mean, they're going to hit drive and wedge to the second hole at Augusta. They're going to hit a drive and a wedge at 15. They're going to hit a drive and a wedge at 13. I mean, where are we going? They, if they play at St. Andrews, the home of golf, they'll drive seven or eight greens. Right. We've got to slow the ball down for professional golf, not for amateur golf. They're two different games. And don't take the long putter away. Don't do anything that's going to reduce rounds of golf. Rounds of golf are down now. We've got to do more with young people. We've got to come up with brilliant ideas to get more people to play golf. 
And people have got to realize what a great exercise golf is, contrary to what people think. It's a great exercise. I remember Michael Jordan saying, if he walked 36 holes, he felt pooped. And he he was the greatest athlete in the world. Mr. Player, just a couple more before I let you go. And um, I, I've, ta- I've had the privilege of, of talking to you a couple of times in the past. And, and uh, I said this to you, and I was talking to your son, Mark, and I said this to Mark. Um, you, your voice is the voice of conscience in my head. I used to be a, a big ice cream eater, hot fudge sundaes all the time. And now when I go try to get some ice cream, I hear your voice in my head saying, come on, man. That's poison. <laughs> All that sugar. So well, I make better choices be, because uh, I hear you in my head. Chris, that's such good news. Uh, it's so nice to hear that. I haven't had an ice cream or a piece of bacon in 22 years. Wow. And you know, Chris, it's so hard. It's so hard to stay healthy and to stay in condition. The most important thing in your life is your health. And people do not worry about it. You know, obesity is killing more people than the wars of the world. More people are dying of overeating than undereating. And we've got to teach the youth. The youth of a nation are the trustees of posterity. We've got to teach the youth at schools how to eat properly. No white bread. Not a lot of milk. You know, and this is only my opinion. You follow? My opinion. Not to say that I'm a doctor, but this is my opinion. I don't drink milk. I don't eat bacon. I don't eat ice cream. I try when I see white bread, I look at poison in my mind. And you've got the big thing is though, with all these fancy diets, you only need, the most you need is two meals a day. You do not need three meals a day. We've got to cut out one meal. I mean, if you go to India and places like that, the people that live a long time and also in Japan, they eat a, they eat a quarter of what we eat in a day. The less you eat, the longer you live. I'm in the racehorse business. If you put 10 pounds on one horse with both horses with equal ability, the other horse is going to beat it most of the time. You've got to keep your weight down. You've got to do that. The biggest problem I think facing America and the free world today is obesity. Mr. Player, I had the privilege of talking with Ben Wright last night, and Mr. Wright's going to be on the show with me tomorrow night. And uh, First of all, he wanted me to pass along to you and his best wishes. He said he's known you since yes. you were practically a boy. What do you what What are some yes. of your uh, memories of Ben Wright? No, I remember Ben when I first first went over to England. He was always such a pleasure to interview, and he was always he was a, he knew a lot about golf, but he knew the subject. And I've always loved Ben. He's been a dear friend all over the years, and please give him my best love. I will. One more before I let you go, and I know your foundation is doing great work. You've raised more than $64 million for underprivileged children and, uh, you know, in communities around the world. Talk about all the great things the Player Foundation is doing. Well, first of all, you can, you know, you can go to China and see the, see the aid center that we built. Isn't it nice to be able to go there and see it? You can go to South Africa and you can see the schools that we built. And then you can go to can go to England and with this company, uh, you know, that I work for, Berenberg Bank in Germany. We were walking in the street in London at night and we saw these people sleeping under the bridges. And I said, we've got to do something for them. And, you know, 
we built what they call the DePaul, D-E-P-A-U-L, the DePaul home, and the bank provided all the most modern technology, and a lot of these people are now doctors and lawyers as such because we gave them an opportunity. So you can see what we've done around the world. You can actually go there and see the things that we've done. They're there forever. Well, Mr. Player, I can't thank you enough for your time this morning and being generous with me. I, I really appreciate you. It's been a, a huge thrill, the, uh, the times I've had an opportunity to talk with you. I thank you for continuing uh, the relationship, and uh, I hope uh, I get the privilege of uh, catching up with you again sometime real soon. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it, my friend. God bless. Same to you, Mr. Player. Bye-bye.